If you don't mind, I'd like to pray before we get into the God's Word. Uh, Father, uh, you tell us uh, that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from your mouth. And so as we open your Bible this morning and read what it has to teach us, Lord, would you please uh, feed us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a story that goes around about Thomas Edison, and uh, you know he famously invented the light bulb, and after being interviewed, or during an interview with the New York Times, uh, they asked him about his many uh, attempts before actually successfully inventing the light bulb. And he said this, I did not fail once. I successfully found a thousand ways that will not work. Now, the exact wording is unclear, but it's a nice idea, right? To learn from our mistakes. That's good for us, to let failure be our teacher. One mistake I learned from in my life happened while I was in high school, which, let's be honest, high school is a season of mistakes for many of us. Um... At the time, I had gorgeous shoulder-length hair, and that was not a mistake. Uh, I I decided that I needed to put it in dreadlocks, which was also not a mistake. Um, But I don't know if you know this, but to put hair into dreadlocks, you need to, like, roll it and use wax and things. And um, I just didn't want to spend that much time with all my hair doing all this rolling. So I devised uh, what I thought would be a great shortcut. I put some of my hair for the first roll into the tip of a drill. And, yeah, and I thought, this will be great. (laughs) All I have to do is press this button, and then I'll have a roll, and I don't have to do anything. Um, That was a mistake. (laughs) And I learned from it. And like Thomas Edison, I'll tell you, I did not fail. I just found one way that did not work. But it's even better and a lot less frustrating if you can learn from the mistakes of others. Instead of monkey see, monkey do, if you can go with monkey see, monkey don't, that'll help. We are wise if we can look at the errors that others have made, not to judge them or anything, but to learn from them and to learn what not to do. There's another famous quote you may be familiar with. It goes like this. Those who fail to learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. The idea is that we can and we should learn from the past so that we might enjoy a better future. And that's exactly what we're going to see today in the passage that we're looking at. We've been going through a series on the Sabbath, and what we're going to see today is actually kind of almost like the climax of the series. And we're going to look at a mistake, a pretty serious mistake that some of our spiritual ancestors made. And the hope is that we would learn from that mistake so that we can truly enter into God's rest today. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 3 and almost all the way through chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it there, uh, but we're actually not going to read it right away. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Um, In the past, normally what I'll do is I'll, I'll read first and then start the preaching Oh, excuse me there. Sorry. Yeah, let me set this down. I need enough room for my notes. Um, I'm actually going to preach almost halfway through the sermon before, I'll just leave it here, before 
uh, getting into the scriptures. And the reason is because he's going to draw heavily on some stories that you need to know. So first off, let's talk about Moses. You guys have probably heard of Moses. You probably know who he is. Uh, He was, by and large, a good guy. We all have our failures, but Moses was a good guy, right? Well, um, there's a story from Moses' life that the, the author of Hebrews chapter 3 is assuming that you know. And it comes from the book of Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And let me summarize it quickly for you. Moses is probably most well known for the stories of the exodus from Egypt with the ten plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea. But from there, what he does is he leads the people through the desert to a place called Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is where you get the Ten Commandments and where the people enter into this covenant relationship with God where they agree you're going to be our God and we'll be your people. Now from there, they go to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Okay? Now Kadesh Barnea is right on the border of the Promised Land or what's called Canaan. Now the reason we refer to it as the Promised Land is because God promised that land to Israel's ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's why it's called the promised land. And so here your Israelites are right on the border, just south of the promised land, okay? And Moses sends 12 scouts into the land, and their job is to bring back a report and tell them what is this land like? What are the people like who live there? What are the cities like? How about the food and the soil? And the people come back after 40 days, and they've got this report. They say, The land is great. It's flowing with milk and honey. Here's some of the produce. It's incredibly abundant, but there's no way we can take it. There's no way we can go into this land. The people who are living there are way too strong. Their cities are fortified. They're they're giants, and we're just grasshoppers in their eyes. We don't stand a chance. That's what 10 of the 12 scouts are saying. Two of them, though, are saying, dude, no way. God promised us this land. He can deliver us, just like he delivered us out of Egypt. All we have to do is trust him and we can take it. And so the nation of Israel at that point has a decision to make. Are they going to listen to these 10 and give in to fear, or are they going to listen to the two and trust in God's promises and enter the land? Unfortunately, They do not trust God's promises. They totally freak out, and they accuse God and Moses, saying, you brought us out here in the desert to die. We we should choose another leader and go go back to Egypt. It was better there. Now, God, at this point, gets pretty upset with them. He had just brought them out of Egypt. He had just given them the Ten Commandments. I mean, he had provided miraculously for them over and over. He had delivered them and taken care of them. And so he makes an oath. He says, all right, you guys don't want this land? You don't get it. For the next 40 years, you're going to wander in the desert until every adult of this generation dies outside of the promised land, with the exception of the two scouts who trusted. And so that's what happens. Now, hundreds of years later, a Hebrew poet comes along. We don't know exactly who it was. And he writes a psalm, and he reflects on this story from Numbers 13 and 14. 
It's Psalm 95. And Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 will quote from this psalm several times. Now this psalm overall is a call to worship Yahweh. It's a call to, remem- to remember that he is the creator of the universe, that he holds the world and its people in his hands, that we are God's people and that he provides for us. So it's a reminder of who God is and it's a call to worship him for that, that we owe him our allegiance, our worship, every bit of honor and respect that we have, we should give to him because he's so great and awesome. And then that's about the first half of the psalm. The last half is what gets quoted in the book of Hebrews. The last half is a warning. And it says, so today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like you did back in the rebellion. And he starts going back to Numbers 13 and 14. He goes, he looks back on that story and says, don't be like those goobers. Don't harden your hearts against God's promises because if you do, if you do, you're going to end up wandering in your own desert and dying out there. Now, what specifically was the mistake that we're supposed to learn from? It was that these people had hardened hearts of unbelief and that unbelief resulted in rebellion and disobedience. They made themselves ineligible to enter the promised land. God actually made an oath against them. He swore an oath that they would not enter. But now, there's something that's interesting that happens in the psalm. He's not just giving you a history lesson of what happened back in Numbers. He's taking the story, which did actually happen in time and history, but he's actually using it as a symbol, as an example. And so the rebels in the desert become symbolic of anybody who would have a hardened an unbelieving heart. And the land becomes symbolic of God's rest. So if you actually read the psalm, and you'll see it in the quotes as we read, that he doesn't say, I made an oath in my anger, they'll never enter my land. It says, I made an oath in my anger that they will never enter my rest. So he takes the land as symbolic for rest, which, by the way, is not that big of a stretch. God calls the land itself rest and a place of rest several times in the Old Testament. So, the author of Hebrews is assuming you know all of that and you know it fairly well, okay? And so let's get into Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. And as I read, I want you to just pay attention to those quotes from Psalm 95 and to the allusions that he's going to make back to the book of Numbers, okay? So in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, so he's starting to quote Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. 
during the time of testing in the desert. So you see he's talking about that story from Numbers. Where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So, we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you has be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, and on the seventh day God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God has set a certain day, calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David as was said before. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. So it's a long passage, but what you can see is that he's, it's a, Steady reflection of Psalm 95 and an application for Christians today. And so what he says is, yeah, we remember Moses. And we all remember that Moses was a good guy. But Jesus, even better than Moses. He's found worthy of higher honor. And now, like Moses, Jesus is leading God's people. He is leading us, not through a physical place to the promised land, but he's leading us to something the author calls God's rest. And so the author says, basically, that puts us in a similar position as the Israelites were thousands of years ago. Jesus is greater than Moses, and so more is now at stake. So Jesus is leading us to something better than the promised land. But on the flip side, to disobey him is going to bring a punishment worse than 40 years in the desert. So the author of Hebrews pulls on Psalm 95 and he says, look, there is still an opportunity for us now 
to enter into God's rest. Did you notice how often he made a point out of the word today? Today, today. In fact, some of your translations, even when he's not quoting it, will have the word today capitalized. He is hammering this point. The idea is that he means right now. We are in an era of opportunity. The rest was not limited to physical entrance into Canaan. And so, the question then is, how do we get in? How do we enter the promised land, the rest? The author says, by not being like them, by not doing what they did, learn from their mistake. Have a soft heart. Have a soft heart of belief in Jesus. Jesus has entered God's rest. He's gone in and he's come back out and he has said by his death and resurrection that I have overcome death, that we are freed from slavery and now he is our new Moses leading us to the new and better promised land. The word today didn't just apply when the author of Hebrews wrote it 2,000 years ago. It applies right now at Flight of Bible Church in Vancouver, Washington in the year 2020. Today, there is an opportunity for you to enter into God's rest. And so, let me do the same thing that the author of Hebrews did with his people. I want to encourage you to learn from their mistake. Don't be like they were in the bad old days. Don't harden your hearts against God's promises. Trust in Jesus. Enter God's rest by way of faith. Believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough to cover your sin and your shame. It is enough to make you whole and fill in where you fall short. It is enough to adopt you as a son or daughter of God, and you have nothing left to prove. And so now you are in the same position as the Israelites. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust Jesus' promises? Are you going to trust and obey and enter into God's rest Or are you going to harden and rebel? See, this book was written to Christians. This is a reminder for those of us who have been following Christ to continue having a soft and tender heart towards Jesus and his word. This is also an invitation to any of you who might be considering Christ. Enter into God's rest. He invites you in. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this is the fifth part in the sermon series that we've been going through on the Sabbath and that it's almost like the climax. And yet, I've not talked about the Sabbath even once. So, you might be asking, what what does this have to do with the Sabbath? Uh, Only everything. You see, for us as Christians, the Sabbath is simply a way that we tangibly experience and we outwardly express these larger realities Jesus is the one who offers us true rest. We as believers understand that the law is not about the law. The Sabbath is not about the Sabbath. This was last week's sermon. Jesus is the true Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. We recognize that our true rest comes only from him. And the author of Hebrews says that it's when we believe in him, that's when we enter into God's rest. Do you realize what this means by implication? This means that the true rest that you need 
is never going to be found in a particular location or on a particular day, even a day like the Sabbath. It's only going to be found in a person. You can take all the vacation time you want. You can take all the days off from work that you want. You can finally make it to retirement. You can go on cruises. You can spend thousands of dollars on massages and pedicures and spa treatments. You can lay in hammocks, read books, go on quiet walks, go hunting, do whatever it is you do to unwind. And those things are all great. But ultimately, none of them are going to give you the true rest that you need in your soul. It's only in Jesus that you're going to find that because it's only in him that we can cease our endless works. That's what he says when he says anyone who has entered God's rest is able to uh, rest from his own work just as God did from his. Only in Jesus are you able to truly rest because it's only in him that you realize I don't have to do anything to please God anymore. God's already pleased. I don't have to do anything to impress others God's already adopted me as his own son or daughter, so I don't need to strive for the approval of those around me. I don't need to do anything to find purpose and meaning in my life. Jesus has given that to me. It's only in Christ that you're gonna find the true rest that you need. We get to finish, we get to rest in the finished work of Jesus and who he says that we are. Our work is simply to believe. That's it. That's all we've got to do. You see, when we follow Christ, we get more than just a day of rest. We enter into a life of rest. The Sabbath now for us is simply a weekly outward manifestation of the true inner rest that we find in Jesus. And it is important as a practice. It is wise and healthy for us as a practice. But just only exclusively as a practice, it's lifeless. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. The Sabbath is one of the ways that we take time to abide in Christ and rest in his finished work. And what that means is now we can live our own life at peace, at rest. Now, this does not mean that our whole life is just one giant vacation, okay? It doesn't mean that we no longer have any responsibilities and nothing to do, okay? We, we still have to feed our families. You still need to go to work. You still have bills to pay. We're still going to face difficulties and trials. But all of that we do now from a place of rested confidence rather than exhausted anxiety. We do not need to live a life of worry. Because of Christ, you can enter into God's rest and you can find peace no matter what's going on whether it's a pandemic, an economic recession, a contentious election year, an off-the-charts fire season, or whatever life throws at you, you can have peace and rest regardless. Now, those things are still going to be difficult. It's not going to make it easy for you. But you're going to have rest in a way that the people around you who are not following Christ do not. Now, he makes a big point about today we can enter into that, that we have an era of opportunity now. And that's true. We can enter into God's rest now, but it's also a promise for the future. 
You see, the rest we enjoy in God is both a present experience, but also it's a future reality. This means that when we practice the Sabbath, it's what's called proleptic. There's a 25-cent word if you ever want to use one at a barbecue. What that means is you get to experience in the present an aspect of the future. So, pretend you have like a robotic hand that can reach through time into the future. You can grab a small piece of it and bring it back with you. That's what the Sabbath is. It's a small experience of what the life to be will be like. It's not just a reminder of the life that once was back in Eden. We talked about that several weeks ago. It's not just a celebration of the life that is currently living in God's rest, which we're talking about today. It is also a prophetic act by which we get to anticipate and experience our life in eternal glory. One German theologian said it this way. He said, every Sabbath is a sacred anticipation of the world's redemption. So for that reason, you can sort of think about the Sabbath like a glorious rest stop. Now you might be thinking highway rest stop, which is like totally not glorious, okay? Um, But think of it as a place of refreshment and energizing. Um, I have an illustration for you. It's a little bit nerdy, so bear with me. It's from Lord of the Rings, okay? I'm I'm rereading through the series right now. And I think a helpful illustration of what the Sabbath could be like for us is the city of Rivendell. So if you have a life and aren't following me right now, bear with me. The city of Rivendell, and I'm not saying those of you who know what it is don't have life because I read it and I have a life, okay? Uh, But the city of Rivendell is a city of elves, and it's a refuge. The main character in the story, his name is Frodo, and he goes on this super dangerous and exhausting journey. He gets... um, into a near-death experience. He's wandering in the wilderness. He's fleeing from his enemies. He's hiding. He's tired in every way that you can be tired. And he actually just barely makes it to Rivendell alive. Now, listen to how Rivendell is described when he wakes up. Now, um, think about this, not just as an illustration of the, the story, but this is an example of what the Sabbath can be like, Okay? Picture this. This is an image of entering God's rest. Here it is. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house, whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and and sadness. And it's that last line that really helps us out. Merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. So what does Jesus have to do with the Sabbath? Everything. The Sabbath is a picture of the life that Jesus invites us into, and it's an anticipation of the world he's taking us to. We see here in Hebrews an example of unbelief and disobedience from the past and a reflection from Psalm 95, all looking back at that and saying, don't do that. Jesus clearly offers us rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is when you hear that invitation, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart like they did in the wilderness. Enter into God's rest. There was an early church father named St. Augustine, and he's got a pretty famous quote. He says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until, it's fi- until it rests in you. So let me ask you as we wrap up, has your heart found its rest in Jesus? Is your heart still restless? A helpful test to know whether or not it is is just how have you responded over the past nine months? How have you weathered the storm that we've been going through? Have you been able to find some peace? Have you been striving and striving and striving for the good life and you just can't seem to get there? Have you been looking to the headlines or to a politician to bring you some relief? Does it seem like no matter how much you sleep, you're still tired? Because if that's you, Jesus offers you the gospel of rest. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in unbelief. Learn from the mistakes of others. Let the words of Christ penetrate you. Believe in him. Follow him. Put your trust in him, and you're going to find a rest and a peace that nothing in this world can offer. Let me pray for us. Father, our hearts truly are restless until they find their rest in you. I pray for those who are here in this room or who are watching the live stream that might have a restless heart. Would you please help us come to you? Help us to find our peace and our rest in your finished work, Jesus. It's in your holy name I pray, amen.